Good morning. Our scripture reader reading today is from Philippians 2, 19 through 30. This is found on page 981 in your Pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take the one in front of you home with you as a gift from our church. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and a messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and he, is, he has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and I may be less anxious. So I receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Amy. Well, good morning and welcome to the Brookside campus of Christ Community. Uh, we're glad that you're here with us this morning on uh, this special day and what a special moment to be able to celebrate and, and rejoice and enjoy with these uh, new moms and new dads and uh, the new life in, in these families that we were able to celebrate and commit ourselves to this morning. Uh, my name is Taylor. I'm one of the pastors here and it's my joy to lead us in a time of, of teaching now where we unpack God's word and explore uh, what it means and what it uh, the relevance of it for our lives today. But before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Father God, thank you for this image in these babies we dedicated this morning. This image of new life. We thank you for the new life that you continue to bring to our church. Specifically in these babies, but also the new life that you want to make manifest in our lives each and every day. Let that be a reminder to us of, of the new creation that is breaking into the old, of the new life that you bring out of death that is rooted in the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would open our eyes, our ears, soften our hearts to hear your word for us this morning. Pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of his spirit. Amen. Well, if you were to walk through the front door of my house and walk a little ways and then take a left and then take another left and enter into my bedroom, and if you were to walk up to my dresser and open the top door of my dresser, uh, first off, weird. Why are you doing that? Don't know why you're in your house opening my dresser drawers. But if you were to do that, you would find in that drawer a little wooden box uh, with the word Ashton scribbled on the top of it. And if you were just to continue to uh, proceed down this creepy path of going through my things, uh, you would open that box, 
And in that box, you would see every letter that my wife Ashton has ever written to me. When we were dating and engaged, we were in the habit of writing letters to each other often. It was just something that we did. And honestly, I'm kind of glad that they're safe in that box where now uh, only me and her and now all of you uh, know how to get to them because they're kind of embarrassing and cheesy. But I love them. Now here's the thing about those letters. I did not have to sit around and wait to get one of those letters to hear how Ashton was doing. In fact, our, our letters to each other hardly had anything to do with our lives at all. They probably wouldn't be great reading. They were much more of an expression of our care for each other than an account of here are the things that I've been up to. Why is that? Well, well it's because these letters weren't my only form of communication with her, right? In fact, I would often be in the middle of writing a letter to my wife, then fiance, and at the same time be texting her about how her day's going. I could do both at the same time. And that's kind of how all of the letters that we write in the 21st century work, right? Like if we really want to check in on someone or have a good conversation with them, we text them, we give them a call, we slide into their DMs. I mean, if it's really important. We hardly ever use letters for that purpose. But just imagine a world where if you had someone you knew who lived far away from you, the only way you could get an update of news from them was to sit and wait for a letter to come or for a mutual friend to happen to be in town and know some news about them. Imagine a world where you couldn't get on Facebook and see if your friend marked themselves safe during a natural disaster. A world where you couldn't text to see if friends made it home safely. Where you couldn't FaceTime parents and grandparents and and children on the holidays. A world in which if a friend or family member was sick, you might not hear about it for weeks or months. And you definitely couldn't just hop on a plane and get there in a day. A world where with nearly everyone you knew and loved who lived far away from you, you might go extensive periods of time without hearing nothing of their well-being. And in many ways, this is the world that we step into when we read Paul's letter to the Philippians. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we've spent some time studying this letter, and we're calling this series Return to Joy. And the basic question that we're asking in this series goes like this. How do we become people of joy? How do we become people of joy? Many people have called the letter to the Philippians the most joy-saturated letter that we have in the Bible. The most joy-saturated letter. And yet, the circumstances behind the writing of the letter can hardly call for joy. They really mirror the kind of world that we just explored. So you might remember that as Paul, the person who wrote this letter, is writing this letter, he is in prison in Rome, which is far away from the city of Philippi that he is writing to. He's in prison in Rome, and he's sitting and awaiting trial before the Roman government. And while he's sitting there and waiting, this church in Philippi, this church that he planted, you can read about that in Acts 16, this church full of people that he knew and loved and had deep affection for, We're so concerned about him that they were like, look, we need to send someone out and see how he's doing. 
We can't call them. We can't get on Facebook. So they send out one of their own, a man named Epaphroditus, to go check in on Paul, to bring him money and to support him in his ministry while he waits for trial. But there's a hiccup because on the way, Epaphroditus gets sick. And again, they have no idea how he's doing. Somehow news makes it back to them that their friend Epaphroditus had gotten ill on the way, terribly ill. So they know that he's sick, but that's all they know. So these people, the Philippian church, are just stuck sitting and waiting with a lot of questions. Did Epaphroditus make it to Paul? Is he still alive? Will Paul make it out safely of his trial? Are we destined for prison if we keep following the mission of this Paul guy? Lots of questions and nothing to do but wait for a word from Paul. And that word comes in the form of this letter. Now, if I'm honest, today's text that that Amy read for us this morning is the kind of thing that if I'm doing like a daily Bible reading plan through the Bible, it's the kind of thing that I either skip or skim. Anyone else with me? Like genealogies, tabernacle instructions, travel plans. I'm out. <laughs> Let's just push through the, the, all the names and, and get to the good, meaty, rich theological stuff. And yet, as Paul writes this letter, it's clear that he wants to do more than simply offer propositional truths about God, as important as those are. No, he wants to care for and pastor the people he loves so deeply while they are away from each other. He wants to update them on how he's doing because they don't know. They want to up, he wants to update them on how Epaphroditus is doing because as far as they know, he could be dead. They want to, he wants to update them on what they should expect in this period of limbo. And before we dive in and see how that plays out in this text, I want to emphasize that this kind of stuff is just as important to our daily ordinary formation as the densest chunk of rich theological thought. And it just so happens that this section reveals the very environment that causes joy to thrive so much in Paul and so much in this community. It reveals the very environment where joy thrives. And here's kind of the the bottom line, the big idea that we see here about the environment where joy thrives. It goes like this, that joy thrives when we give ourselves to something bigger than ourselves. Joy thrives when we give ourselves to something bigger than ourselves. That's the key. Nothing else could catalyze joy in circumstances like the one facing Paul and the Philippians. It has to be connected to something bigger than ourselves. And in particular, the text that we're going to look at this morning unearths two things that we have to give ourselves to, two particular things that we need to give ourselves over to if we want joy to thrive in the same way in our community, here at Christ Community in Kansas City. Two things we have to give ourselves to if we want joy to thrive. And let me go ahead and give you the first. Joy thrives when we give ourselves to deep friendship. Joy thrives when we give ourselves to deep friendship. Now, in many ways, the book of Philippians is uh, a letter all about friendship. In fact, many scholars put this in the ancient category of letter uh, that's called a friendship letter, which means that everything Paul writes here is couched in the context of of friendship. It, It arises out of his friendship with the Philippians, and that's the reason he writes it. But these travel plans here in Philippians 2 betray just how deep these friendship currents run. 
So we're going to take some time to look at it, and, and, and we're, I'm going to bounce around a bunch, so it might be most helpful to follow along the scripture on the screen, but you're welcome to do that uh, in, your paper, in the hardback Bibles in front of you. But as we bounce around here and see some of these things, just notice, pay attention to how everything Paul decides to do, every plan he makes, every detail, is ultimately based off of how deeply he cares about his friends in Philippi. Pay attention to that and read with me, starting in verse 19. Here's the first thing he says, the first plan he communicates. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So Paul shares his first kind of plan in this process, his first update. He's like, I can't really come right now. I'm still waiting to hear how my trial goes. But as soon as I found out, I'm going to send a man named Timothy. And we're going to talk about him in a little bit. But right now, focus on the reason that Paul sends Timothy to them. He says he sends them to them. Why? Because he knows that he will also be genuinely concerned for the Philippians. In other words, Timothy shares the same heart of Paul for these people. He acts kind of as an extension of Paul's friendship to them. That's why he's sending him to them. Then he says he's sending someone else. So bounce down a little bit, and he says, I'm not only sending Timothy, even before that, I'm going to send someone else back. Epaphroditus. I'm sending him back. He's alive. Good news. Spoiler alert. He's coming back. I'm sending him back to you. And it's interesting because he actually sends him for pretty similar reasons that are all bound up in friendship. Look at verse 28. It says, I'm the more eager to send him, him as Epaphroditus, therefore that you may, what? Rejoice. That you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So Paul says, I know that, that you guys are anxious to hear how he's doing and to see him again. You're anxious about your friend's health, so, so I'm going to send him back so that you can rejoice at seeing him again, celebrate at, at that reunion. I mean, think about the joy that you have when a friend is, is terribly sick and recovers, or when a child is driving on icy roads and makes it home safely, or, or when a parent returns from serving overseas. Those moments of joy at seeing one another again, at locking eyes with someone for the first time in a long time. And it often goes that the more you care about the person, the deeper that relationship is, the greater the joy at the reunion, right? That kind of tends to be how it goes. And evidently, this is how seeing Epaphroditus will be for the Philippians. So Paul wants them to have that joy of a reunited friendship. And the way he talks about Epaphroditus, it seems that he feels the same way about the Philippians. Look how Paul describes how he's feeling in verse 26. For he, again, that's Epaphroditus, has been longing for you all and distressed because you heard he was ill. He's longing for you all and distressed because you heard he was ill. So Epaphroditus is concerned about the Philippians because they're concerned about him and Paul's concerned about all of it. And all that concern is rooted in friendship. So he wants to make that reuniting happen. Because Epaphroditus longs to be with the Philippians again. Not only that, but Paul also says that sending these two people is not only going to be good for them, but it's going to comfort him too. Look back at verse 19 again. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I 
Two, maybe cheered by news of you. In other words, hearing good news about his friends will, will cheer him up, bring him a little more joy. And then in verse 28 again, I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. We talked about that. And that I may be less anxious. The picture you get here is that Paul is incredibly concerned for the well-being of his friends in Philippi. So much that hearing news of how they're doing will cheer him up. Knowing that they're reunited safely with Epaphroditus will, will make him less anxious. He's worried. All of Paul's plans, to the smallest detail, are rooted in his care and concern for them. That's the first friendship dynamic at play. But second, notice how Paul also talks about these two men he's sending, Timothy and Epaphroditus. He talks about them with language that conveys deep admiration and tender affection. Epaphroditus apparently grew pretty dear to Paul in the short time that they spent together because Paul says this in verse 27. He says, indeed he was ill, as worse than you thought. He, was, he almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Even more incredible are the words he uses to describe Timothy in verse 20. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I have no one like him. Paul says, I have no one, I know no one who is like this guy, Timothy. Now just stop and think for a minute. How many people would you say that about? I don't know anyone who's as great as this person. That's how much he loves him. That's the deep, tender affection he has for him. Then he takes it even further and compares his relationship with Timothy to that of a father and a son. In verse 22, he says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I just imagine Paul sitting there watching Timothy pastor and lead and serve and just looking at him beaming with pride like a son. This is not the stuff of surface-level acquaintance. These are words of tender affection and absolute trust. See, Timothy joined Paul's church-planting journey uh, about 10 years prior to the writing of this letter, over a decade before Philippians was written. It was right before Paul planted the church in Philippi for the very first time. You can, again, read about it in Acts 16. He, like, picks up Timothy, jets to Philippi. So Timothy's been with him for a long time, and here he is, right here, right by Paul's side, writing this letter with Paul over a decade later, after all this time, proving his worth. This is a small glimpse of a deep friendship that has been forged over a decade of serving God together. As the great author George MacDonald once said, few delights can equal the presence of one whom we trust utterly. Isn't that true? And that's the joy, that's the delight that Paul knew in these friends in Timothy. So much that he trusted them with the people he cared most deeply about in Philippi. He loved these people and he trusted them and their development in his absence to Timothy, Epaphroditus. He wants nothing more than to be with them, but the next best thing is sending people he trusts. And all of this can be true because every party involved had given themselves over to deep, meaningful friendships with the people of God. And joy was unleashed. I mean, you can't read this and not see that everyone literally is, cares about and is concerned about everyone. Paul's concerned about the Philippians. They're concerned about Paul. Paul's concerned about Epaphroditus. So are the Philippians. Epaphroditus is concerned because everyone's concerned about him. It's just all over. 
And everyone wants to be with everyone. They're like, I wish I could be with you. I'm sending someone to be with you soon. Deep friendships are the environment that joy needs to thrive. Now, I have found this to be true firsthand because one of the greatest sources of joy that I have seen in my life has come from uh, my close friends growing up in high school and college. I have a close handful of friends. I have a few pictures of them here just so you can see the kind of crowd I run around with. That's my friend Jake I grew up with. You recognize that guy. He's leading worship this morning. That's my friend Mark. My friend Mike. Strange. That's my brother Cameron. I mean, what a bunch of weird people. Who takes pictures like that at their wedding? (laughs) We probably paid a little extra money in, in film costs just to get some ridiculous pictures taken. But those are my friends. And I was lucky enough to find that core group of deep friendships, and it was consistent for many, many years of my life. In fact, all of us are still friends with each other today. And one of the reasons that joy was so easy to find in those friendships was that we simply loved being with each other and going deep with each other. Now listen, we're weird. You can easily tell that. We could do the stupidest things, but find joy in doing them because we just loved being with each other. We were just glad to be together. And then we could turn and have the most meaningful, deep, heartfelt conversations And our shared joy would only grow. These friends anchored joy for me for much of my life. Now, I've also experienced the opposite of that. Because friendship like this is not always easy to find. I remember turning to my wife, Ashton, after we moved to Denver. uh, Right after we got married, we moved out to Denver. And about a year in, I turned to her and I said, Man, making friends as adults is hard. It's just hard to do. It's hard to make friends. I still feel that way a little bit. Maybe you feel the same or have felt the same in your life. And actually, I'm sure Paul did too. It's important for us to remember that this picture of a joyful, loving, encouraging community in Philippians was not his experience with every church that he went to. If you want a test case, just read 1 Corinthians. There's not much joy there. A lot of other things, but not joy. This wasn't his experience at every church. So let's, like, let's be honest. Friendship is hard. But the picture we get here is that it's absolutely worth the work. So let me just suggest one way that we can begin to foster this environment here today at Christ Community. It's a simple suggestion, and it might mean a ton of different things depending on where you are this morning. But here's the first suggestion. It's be present. Be present. There's a massive emphasis here on the importance of physical presence with one another. I think we've seen over the course of the last year that virtual presence with one another is just not the same. And isolation's even worse. I mean, Paul here is sending two people back, wishing he could come too, just so that they can all walk together physically with one another in the flesh. So that they can give the Philippians an example of what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel that they can see face to face. We've already talked a little bit in this series about how joy works particularly in tandem with physical presence. You might remember that we've used the definition that joy is when someone is glad to be with me or when your face lights up to see me. There's something relational about experiencing joy. It starts, it's transmitted through the eyes. You see someone, your eyes connect, there's joy there. And then it's transmitted then through the voice. Both of those are connected to a physical, fleshy presence with each other. So what does that mean for you, to be present? 
Maybe it means to, you need to commit to showing up and being present at church in the season. You've been thinking about coming back. Maybe it's the time to jump back in more full swing. Maybe it's showing up and being present more fully in your community group, your small group, your Bible study, the group of, of men that you get together with on Tuesday mornings for confession and prayer. Maybe it means getting coffee with someone that you see on Sunday mornings or inviting someone over for dinner. Maybe it's just modeling what Paul models of encouraging and celebrating and affirming one another. I don't know what it is, but there's something about physical presence that unlocks joy in the local church. So be present, whatever that means to you right now. Maybe take some time today and ask the the Spirit to reveal that to you. Joy thrives when we give ourselves to something bigger than ourselves, and that starts with deep friendship. But there's more that we need if joy is actually going to thrive. The second thing we see in these travel plans in Philippians 2 is that joy thrives not only when we give ourselves to deep friendship, but also when we give ourselves to sacrificial mission. Joy thrives when we give ourselves to sacrificial mission. See, these friends, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, all the people in Philippi, they're not just buddies. Their lives aren't just centered around football. They don't just drink beer together. It's not less than those things, but it's so much more. There is a mission. There is a passion that, are, that tie them together. And it deepens their friendship and makes them ready to sacrifice everything for one another and sacrifice everything for the truth that they all care about, the one goal that they're seeking after together. There's a mission that unites them together. Again, Paul highlights this quality in both Timothy and Epaphroditus. Look first at verse 21 when he talks about Timothy. I think maybe it's up there. There we go. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, why is he like this? Is he just a good dude? For, all, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. In other words, the thing that makes Timothy so different from everyone else is that he's not caught up in himself. He's focused solely on the interests of Jesus. He's not in it for himself. He's in it for God's mission. That's what makes him able to share Paul's genuine concern for their well-being. He has even more to say about Epaphroditus on this front, actually. Here's how he describes him in verse 25. This is Epaphroditus. Now, I've thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. He calls him his fellow worker, his brother, his fellow soldier and a message and minister to, her, to his need. That military language of, of soldier is only used by Paul throughout the New Testament in connection when he's talking about the mission of the gospel. That's when he talks, uses that military language. So Paul is not just saying that Epaphroditus is a good guy or even a good friend. He's like, no, this guy is fighting with me in the same battle. He's a fellow soldier, a fellow worker. And because of this, Paul encouraged the Philippians. He's like, hey, honor him. Celebrate Epaphroditus because of this. Verse 29, he says, so receive him in the Lord with what? With all joy. And honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He says, because of all these things he's done, they should receive him with joy. Joy should arise in the community, celebration, because of the sacrifices of Epaphroditus made for the sake of the gospel and to support Paul. 
And all of this is true of him because Epaphroditus had given himself to something bigger than himself, that even sickness didn't stop him. And if joy is going to thrive in our community today, we have to give ourselves to this sacrificial mission of the gospel of Jesus and all of the risky work that it entails. Deep friendship, sacrificial mission. Now here's the thing. This is where we can get stuck a little bit. We need them both. We need both deep friendship and sacrificial mission. Many of us are tempted to kind of pick one over the other. We're kind of wired in that way. So maybe you come to church and you're like, church is all about this mission and nothing else, so I'm just going to show up by myself, not connect with anyone, and work on this mission. That's what I'm called to do. And some others of us show up at church and we're like, I'm just here for the friendships. I just need some good friendships, some solid friends. Uh, I kind of like my safe, comfortable, secure life, and so I don't really want to take too many risks for this mission. It's not as important to me as just having some good friends at church. Both of those things are important. You can't have one without the other. And actually, they reinforce each other mutually. Listen to these words from a couple of experts on joy. They say, passion, love, and sacrifice are all natural outgrowths of a joy-fueled culture. This is a great line. People will do hard things and make great sacrifices when they have joy in their relationships. People will do hard things. They'll make great sacrifices when they have joy in their relationships. In other words, the stronger our friendships, the deeper our relationships, the more joy we have there, the more we are empowered to sacrifice on behalf of our shared goal. To put it simply, relational joy fuels sacrificial mission. Relational joy fuels sacrificial mission. And that's actually how it works the other way around too. Uh, in the book, The Four Loves, a book that was written by C.S. Lewis talking about the different ways we love each other, uh, he compares the difference between lovers and friends. He says lovers get their joy by, by looking and staring at each other. So just cue all of those gushy letters that I talked about earlier. That was Ash and I just staring right at each other. Nothing else in the world, just, the, just looking at each other. But friends, he says, get their joy by staring together at something else. By staring together at something else. By locking their eyes on something bigger, a shared goal that they have together. He says in that book that the question of every friendship is ultimately this. Do you see the same truth? Not do you see everything the same way as I do. That, let's be clear about that. But do you see the same truth? Or do you even, do you care about the same truth, the same thing that I do? It's what's most important to you, most important to me. These people in the book of Philippians can share an even deeper and more thriving joy because their eyes are locked in on the same thing together. And that one thing is more important than anything or anyone. And like them, some of my closest friendships have been forged when we've been serving alongside each other. All of those um, weird guys that I popped up on the screen earlier, all of us for over 10 years have been doing youth ministry together. For 10 years. We've been doing ministry together, serving others together. And it's strengthened our bond and it's strengthened our joy. Now we could put all of this together and say it like this, that our mission cannot go further than the depth of our relationships and our relationships cannot go deeper than our commitment to God's mission. Our mission cannot go further than the depth of our relationships 
And our relationships cannot go deeper than our commitment to God's mission. They build on each other and create joy. Now let me tell you one of my favorite examples of this. And if you're honest, if you've heard me preach before, uh, you knew this was coming. You've kind of been sitting around probably waiting for when this was going to pop up. Uh, But I just want to give an example, one of my favorites, because he is the absolute best, unequivocally greatest friend in all of literature. You already know who it is. Sam Gamgee. Right? Isn't he just a really great friend? I love in Lord of the Rings this this shared mission and friendship that he and Frodo have on their journey. They go on a long journey that took a lot of time. But Sam's love for Frodo and his determination to see their mission all the way through emboldened him. They deepened each other. The longer the journey you see as you read that long book, the deeper the friendship. The deeper the friendship, the more fuel they have for the sacrifices they need to succeed on the journey. And I just love this quote. It's just brilliant writing by Tolkien in The, in the Return of the King. It's so good. He says, One tiny hobbit against all the evil the world could muster. A sane being would have given up. But Samwise burned with a magnificent madness, a glowing obsession to surmount every obstacle, to find Frodo, to destroy the ring, and cleanse Middle-earth of its festering malignancy. And he knew that he would try again, fail perhaps, and try once more, a thousand, thousand times if need be, but he would not give up the quest. Friends, that's what we're on mission for. Not to throw a ring into a mountain, but there's always evil worth fighting. There is a festering malignancy in our world that the kingdom of God is breaking into. And God's mission is to eradicate and heal the world of this evil. And he invites us to be a part of it. And friends, when that's our shared mission, when we walk eyes on that together, that changes the way we show up at work. That changes the way we show up in our family. That changes the way we show up at church. That changes the way we show up in our friendships and in our city. And it fills our community with joy. The joy of knowing one another deeper and the joy of being united in a mission that supersedes any one of us. That, friends, is giving ourselves to something bigger than ourselves. So let me suggest another way that we can begin to foster this environment at Christ's community. And it's just as vague, just as open for whatever the Spirit speaks to your heart in this moment. Here's the second suggestion. Be willing. Be present be willing. Be willing to go deeper with others, to move beyond the superficial to the transparent, the authentic, the raw. Be willing to get hurt in your pursuit of friendship because it might happen. But if we aren't willing, we'll definitely never find it if we don't try. Be willing to step in and serve. You might find more joy and purpose in serving the church or in the city than anything else. And what might happen is you might just discover a friend who loves serving with you in the process, and that deepens because you're serving together. Be willing to make sacrifices, to sacrifice yourself for the sake of others, to bring a meal to a hurting family even though your schedule is packed, to be bold in your convictions and hold fast to the gospel when it's risky at work, to give generously to the mission of the local church, 
to change a practice in your vocation that's at odds with human flourishing or the vision of the kingdom of God. Be willing to pray over someone, not just pray for or say you're going to pray for, but pray over someone. Do you know the joy of that? Have you ever had someone pray over you? And just the joy that wells up in your soul when someone prays blessing and healing and comfort and encouragement over you. You don't have to be good at it. God can bring joy. Be willing to step out of your comfort zone, to do whatever it takes to be a friend to others and to join the sacrificial work that God is doing in the world. Where is God calling you to be more willing to sacrifice for friendship or for mission this morning? Where is he calling you to do that? I gave you the example of Samwise. Let me give you another example of this. The example of a man who was anchored eternally in friendships of mutual delight, Father, Son, Spirit, who came to earth and became a friend to this ragtag group of ordinary people. A man who the author of Hebrews tells us endured death, even death on a cross. Why? For the joy set out before him. It was all about joy. A joy that came from a laser focus on his mission and a love for those that he would rename and call his friends. A man who endured deep sacrifice because of his commitment to mission and his commitment to his people. Because he delights in us. He delights in you. That is the picture of friendship and mission available to us today. We have an invitation extended to us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves and to discover the fullness of joy that cannot be found in isolation in the process. Let's pray. Father God, there's a lot here. We know that a culture of joy does not bloom overnight, but it takes time, it takes loyalty, it takes commitment to one another, commitment to your mission. So God, we pray that you would still in us a, a, a conviction to be committed, to be loyal, to, to stick it out, and ta- to take the next step, whatever your spirit reveals to us this morning, is the next thing we need to do to deepen friendships or deepen our willingness to sacrifice for your mission here at Christ Community. I don't know what that is for the people in this room. I don't even really know what it is for myself, but I know that there is a way that I need to go deeper there. Would you help us see what that is? And God, I pray, I so want this vision of a joy-saturated community of mutual delight and love and encouragement and sacrifice to be the ethos of our church. That can only happen by the power of your spirit. Would you do that? In the name of your son, Jesus, by the power of his spirit, the spirit that raised him from the dead. Amen.